Welcome to Killian Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Pastor Chris Reynolds, the lead pastor of Killian Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire at Killian Baptist Church is to be disciples of Christ who go out with the gospel that others might enter into a relationship with God. God bless you as you listen, and please consider subscribing so you can tune in every week. Good morning, everyone. Should I say good morning, family? Because uh, as far as I'm concerned, you all are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's an honor and a privilege to stand before you today. Um, Pastor Chris filled me in on what you've been focusing on lately, injustices in our world, and our, how it is our responsibility as Christ followers to address and fight those injustices head on. And I, I looked at the video and I, I've thought through a lot of the things that he's shared with me about the initiatives that you all are taking. And uh, let me start by saying that you're not about to hear the ramblings of an angry black man. Chris didn't bring a black guy in to focus on the issue of racism. That's not why I'm here. Rather, I'd like to challenge you and encourage you not to lose the momentum that you've begun to build. See, this idea of flipping me to we, it's not something that's as simple as flipping on a light switch that was previously off. Doesn't really work that way. Moving from being me-centered to we-centered, from taking the primary focus off of ourselves and placing it onto others is a steady process that requires momentum. So if you join me today, I'd like to pray and ask for God's grace as I share the word with you so that we can continue that momentum. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you, God, for the honor, for the privilege to stand before your people, to proclaim what you've put in my heart to say. And I pray that you move me out of the way and that whatever it is you desire to say and do, let it be done and said for your glory and prepare our hearts and our minds and help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to also be doers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, I want you all to kind of lose that visual of flipping on and off a light switch. It's not really how this works. I think a better visual would be an hourglass, right? An hourglass. Uh, you take and you flip an hourglass. The, the initial movement is sudden. But the process of emptying the sand from the top portion to the bottom is steady. It takes time. It takes time for the sand to empty itself from the full portion to the bottom portion. Uh, speaking of emptying oneself, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul brilliantly lays this out when he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or held on to. Uh, in other words, Jesus being just as much God as God the Father had every right to hold on to his nice sand and keep it in this top portion of the hourglass. But that's not what he did. Instead, in verses 7 and 8, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of sinful humanity. And when he come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Jesus poured himself into the bottom of the hourglass, into an empty, hollow container so that he could be where we are and so that he could relate experientially to what he already knew intellectually. But he didn't just come to love on us and to empathize with us. 
You know, if, if he just stopped at loving on us, he probably could have just opened up the heavens and said, hey, I love you, and closed them back up. <laughs> what he did was he also came to seek justice on behalf of the oppressed and ultimately to fulfill the justice of God the Father on mankind by humbling himself and dying the horrendous death of the cross that we deserved. In essence, Jesus fully lived out what God requires of us according to Micah 6 and 8. Now, just to give you a background, a brief background on the book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, he's an 8th century B.C. prophet from the small town of Morsheth Gath. It's located about 25 miles southwest, southwest of Jerusalem in the tribe of Judah. But it's likely that he actually lived in Jerusalem during the time of his ministry. It's pretty ironic that God takes a guy from the boondocks to get the city folk back in line. <laughs> All right. Micah's ministry was active during the reigns of three kings of Judah. Jotham, who most consider a good king. Ahaz, who most consider a downright awful king. And Hezekiah, who's more well known as a good king as well. He was a contemporary, Micah was, of Isaiah, Hosea, and possibly Amos. And his prophecies were directed both to Jerusalem and to Samaria. Now, Micah's message was centered on uh, three themes social justice, a proper worship of the Lord, and the future hope of the coming Messiah. And I love the way the book of Micah is framed. It's kind of framed in the uh, image of a, a court case. So think in terms of, of, of God being the plaintiff and the judge, Israel and, and Judah being the defendants, and the courtroom audience being the rest of mankind. You kind of got the picture? So, so, so in chapter 1, God pronounces judgment, points his finger at the defendants. <laughs> not, not saying it's y'all. <laughs> he says, listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth, everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. He's coming down to handle his business. He's coming down to pronounce judgment on Israel and Judah. And he specifies this when he says, all this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. Now, those of you that are familiar with uh, Israel history, at one point they were divided into two kingdoms. Northern kingdom, which was called Israel, uh, consisted of 10 of the tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah consisted of two of the tribes. So when God makes this initial statement to the house of Israel, Micah starts to lament also later on in chapter 1, verse 8. Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. Here's why. Verse 9. For her wound is incurable and has reached even to Judah. So in other words, even though God's initial statement was against the northern kingdom of Israel, Micah recognized that this is bled over into my neck of the woods. He didn't make the mistake of changing me to they. That's not a transition that we need to make. You got to be careful that you don't make the subtle mistake of transitioning me to they. They're wrong. They're different. They're not me, therefore I don't need to care about them. Micah didn't make that mistake. What Micah did was he owned the corporate sin of both Israel and Judah, and he lamented over it. And he said, these are my people. We've done this wrong. So 
So in chapters 2 and 3, God then begins to get specific as he lays this case out against his people. He speaks against oppressors. He speaks against false prophets, abusive leaders, wealthy scam artists, judges that issue false rulings for bribes, priests that teach for payment, prophets that prophesy for profit. Then chapters 4 and 5, the focus shifts to the future hope of God's restored rule. It's an interesting shift here. Um, God's judgment in the Old Testament, it's, it's not just judgment for the sake of judgment. I hear a lot of people make that argument about the God of the Old Testament. Uh, I've heard some atheists and agnostics talk about him as a moral monster, as if there's no love or mercy surrounding the judgment of God. God's judgment is not primarily for, for judgment. You know, I heard a preacher say one time that uh, God is not this deadbeat dad that it's pleasure out of child abuse. That's not how it works. So the focus shifts here to the future hope of God's restored rule. And it's actually familiar. It's, some scholars believe that uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, is actually directly copied from Isaiah. It sounds very familiar. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us gather and go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his paths. He'll teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. This is what you all may be familiar with. They will beat their swords into plows, their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. This is, this is almost uh, similar, almost a copy of Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Now, scholars kind of debate whether or not it was copied or whether or not God just gave the same message to both men. In, in either case, God is God and he can do what he wants. <laughs> so in chapters 4 and 5, the focus shifts. And then in chapter 6, the focus shifts again. What God does in chapter 6 is now that he's laid out his opening argument in the case, now he turns to Israel and Judah and says, all right, it's y'all's turn. What is it that you all have against me? You testify and you bring your case to me. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Chapter 6, verse 1. Rise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your complaint. Verse 2. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains, and enduring foundations of the Lord. Because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, this is God talking here. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. God is saying, you, you, you want to complain about the judgment that I'm bringing? Present your case. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, I sent Aaron, I sent Miriam to you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. In other words, even though God is asking them to present their case, he's well aware that they don't actually have one. So then, after this, then the imagery shifts, and it's almost as if the defendants are speaking in verse 6. Well, what should I bring before the Lord? Since I don't have a case against you, God, what do you want from me? When I come to bow before God on high, should I come with burnt offerings? Should I come with your old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with thousands of streams of oil? Here's the mistake that they made. 
what they started to fall into is this empty, ritualistic kind of actions or offerings that God had already previously rejected. They fell right back into it. Hang on, lost my place. Sorry about that. <laughs> they fall right back into empty, ritualistic, me-centered actions as a solution. But it's not that simple. Throughout the Old Testament, God constantly denounces such empty rituals that aren't driven by genuine repentance and humility. My mind goes to Psalm 51, uh, where David is repenting of his sin of basically taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba, raping her, and then having him killed. He's repenting in that psalm. And one of the parts of the psalm that struck me was verses 16 through 17. God, you don't want sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You're not pleased with burnt offerings, okay? I, I'm, I'm not going to give you these things because this is not what you want, because those things are empty. All of the burnt offerings, all of the animal sacrifices, all of these, these material things that I would bring to you to try to make up for the mess that I've made, they're not working because they don't come from a place of sincerity or humility or genuine repentance. Yet, as we see here in Micah chapter 6, verse 6, this is exactly what they fell right back into. How can I get myself right with you? What do I need to do? And it's not that it's a bad question. It's just that their approach to it needs to change. Um, and in general, I see this as a pattern of our Americanized version of Christianity. It's very individualistic at its core. In a lot of instances, it's all about my personal relationship with Jesus. But I, I like to think of it this way. Um, I've been married to my lovely wife, Felicia, for about 11 years. We have two beautiful daughters. And I love my wife beyond words. Um, and I understand that our relationship is between her and I. Our relationship is certainly between us, but it's not just for us. It's between us, but it's not just meant to benefit the two of us. Our relationship is actually meant to benefit our children. It's meant to benefit our extended families. It's meant to benefit our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors. It's the same with our relationship with Jesus. Even though it might be between the two of us, it's not just for the two of us. So, so at this point, at this point, Micah calls attention to this notion of this individualized, ritualistic, getting myself right back with God kind of stance. And he says, that's not what you need to do. And he points this out in verse 8, mankind. Now he's talking to the courtroom audience. Now it's not just Israel and Judah that he's focusing on. Now he's talking on mankind as a whole. And he says, he has told each of you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? One, to act justly. Two, to love faithfulness, or another translation, to love mercy. And three, to walk humbly with your God. To do justly. In other words, act in a just, fair way towards others. All of us are familiar with the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a, simple com it's a simple concept on the surface, and yet it gets a little more complex as we delve into it. But firstly, he just asks us to do justly. Be fair-minded. 
Treat others like you want to be treated. Love mercy, love faithfulness, and don't just love mercy for your sake. Don't just want mercy for yourself, but seek mercy for others. Give others the same measure of mercy you would want to receive, and then walk humbly with your God. Remember who God is, and remember who you are in comparison to who God is. You know, walking humbly is not necessarily this idea that you're, you're deprecating yourself or putting yourself down. It's just remembering who you are in relation to who he is. So all this seems simple on the surface, right? This, 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 this proclamation from God saying, okay, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. We, we, we like simple steps to problems. <laughs> we like simple solutions. And it seems simple on the surface, but where it gets complex it has to do with our default setting as human beings. Due to our sinful nature, our default setting is self-centeredness. It's a result of the fall. As a result of the fall, we now seek our own uh, uh, good. We now seek our own survival. We now seek our own interest at the expense of others. It's just how we're wired by default. But following Jesus requires a drastic flip of this default setting to self-sacrifice. And as I pointed out before, that's not a flip of a light switch. It takes time. It takes momentum. It takes intentionality. It takes you getting outside of your comfort zone and looking out for others as opposed to yourself. But the good news is this. As I stated before, Jesus condescended and came down to us, and he provided the only flawless example for us to follow. So he doesn't just proclaim judgment on us and then leave us to our own devices. He says, okay, this is what you're doing wrong. The good news is I have a way for you to make it right. And through the call, though the call to follow him, though the call to follow Jesus is demanding and costly, it, it, it really is. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It costs us something. That's true. But we aren't following some tyrannical drill sergeant who won't tolerate any weakness. We're following one who's been in the trenches with us. For we don't have a high priest that can't be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. We don't have a high priest who is not familiar with our struggles. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And he offers us the grace to do what we could not do on our own. So as I conclude, um, I'm reminded of, of what Jesus said in response to this, um, this snarky teacher of the law in the New Testament. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, uh, this guy comes up to Jesus, tries to test him, and get him to say something that he can entrap him with. And he asks Jesus, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he could have stopped there. He could have stopped at our personal relationship with Jesus, as I pointed out earlier. But he doesn't stop there. He says, this is the greatest and important command, and the second is like it. The second carries just as much weight. It's just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets depend on these two commands.
My brothers and sisters, again, I want to encourage you. Keep building on the momentum that you're building. This, this, this concept of flipping me to we is not an easy one to implement. It's easy to talk about, it's easy to preach, and it's easy to listen to somebody preach about it. But it takes some intentionality and momentum to actually put it into practice in our everyday lives. I encourage you, please, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Be willing to break out of your comfort of me-centeredness and let's flip me to we and do good. If you join me for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word brings life. Your word, God, convicts. Your word corrects. But your word also offers hope. And we ask you, God, that based on what you've told us this morning, that you would help us to get out of ourselves and to look out for the needs of others, to esteem others more highly than we esteem ourselves. I pray for this church, I pray for this body, that you would empower them and continue to push them towards greatness.